right, what's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of Drop Into The Heart. Today's episode is a solo cast with yours truly, and it's a juicy one. I am really feeling called to share some some vulnerable uh, internal struggles that I've been navigating recently uh, and dancing with for quite a while. Um, and really excited to share some, some juicy stories and, um, and, you know, hopefully by listening to this, this episode, uh, you'll be able to, um, really reflect on your own life, your own inner world, and, uh, hopefully, um, reveal some deeper truths, uh, within your life. Uh, I know I've, I've been really accessing some some deeper stories in my life and uh, I'm feeling called to really to go deep, which is, which is a challenge. So uh, please uh, be patient with me. Uh, before we get into the episode, I'd love to share just a little bit about the Heart Collective, which is a community focused on supporting heart-led leaders who are focused and inspired to build the foundation for a more beautiful world. And the community is thriving, it's growing. Uh, and if you are not yet a part of it, you can simply join our Telegram channel. There is a link in the show notes. Uh, it's really simple. If you don't use Telegram, it's like the modern day uh, communication channel uh, for communities. Uh, as the community grows, um, we're probably going to have to figure out uh, a different community type platform uh, to continue to create intimacy uh, and connection uh, with a community that is continuing to grow. Uh, but we're having amazing conversations on the app and we are continuing to build out incredible offerings. Uh, we're going to have a lot more local offerings here in Austin, Texas. Uh, some sharing circles, some uh, breath work. I'll be facilitating some holotropic breath work and uh, some special community events at my my house as well. So be on the lookout for those, and then we'll be hosting some some bigger community gatherings, some retreats, and all of that good stuff uh, moving forward into 2023. So check out heartcollective.org, H-A-R-T collective.org. And uh, if you are a run a business, you're an entrepreneur, and you have a team, we're also putting together a leadership training program for the principles of heart-led leadership. Uh, really excited about how that's going, uh, working with a few companies that we have now. So with all that being said, Let's go ahead and drop in to our hearts, see what kind of magic flows, what kind of magic comes through. So if you want to find some stillness, wherever you're at, whatever you may be doing, if you want to keep doing it, that's fine. Just connect with the energy as we slow down, gently close your eyes. Begin bringing your awareness inward into your center, whatever that means for you. Feeling into your body, noticing any sensation or energy that's present. Connecting with your breath. Feeling the rhythm, the influence. 
inflow and outflow of air as it enters and leaves your lungs. Begin breathing that energy into your heart. Feeling the energy of the heart. Center of love, compassion, connection, intuition, truth, love. Let us open our hearts today. Let us connect through the words and vibrations that come through. May they be powerful. May they be filled with truth. May they inspire possibility. Let us take a few breaths together now, starting with a deep breath in through the nose. Long, slow exhale at the mouth. Again, deep breath in. Noticing any shifts in your energy and your awareness, feeling more grounded, more present. And I just want to start with some deep gratitude <clears throat> for you taking the time to listen to my words, listen to my podcast. I am in deep gratitude for the opportunity and the platform I have to, to share. Uh, this is been a journey of growth, of learning, and of letting go. I really feel like uh, a lot of us are being called to confront and let go of deeper aspects of ourselves, of our shadow. And that's what this, this episode is about today, is me confronting uh, deeper parts of myself uh, specifically around this part of myself that I've been calling the inner addict. And I'm going to take you on a journey and we'll see how it comes out. Don't have it planned too much. And these solo casts always prove to be a little bit more challenging than a conversation. <sighs> Where should I start? Hmm. I'll start from the beginning. <laughs> Always seems like a good place to start. When I was younger, in high school, I would consider myself one of these good, I guess a good Christian boy. I didn't really drink. I don't know how many people actually drink in high school until like halfway through high school, junior, senior year. Um, but I always felt like I was late to the game. And always had a lot of resistance to to partying, uh, to drinking, to doing drugs, anything like that. Because I grew up in a pretty strong Christian 
upbringing. Uh, and a lot of that stuff was just frowned upon. Uh, I did start drinking in my senior year, uh, about halfway through my senior year after the football season. And uh, I felt like I was so far behind at that point. Uh, all my friends had started drinking like a year before, a couple years before. And so I remember the first time I got drunk and I was like drinking at, at my first beer. I was like, what's this supposed to feel like? What's this supposed to feel like? I had the second beer. I was at this place called Pepperoni's in Yorba Linda, California. And we, it was like a pizza parlor and they had um, pitchers of beer. And one of my friends, uh, he he went there with one of his coworkers that was, he worked like Coles or something and he was older. And so he went in there, got some drinks and didn't card him. So he's like, let's just go get some beers. And so we just ordered it. We're like 16, 17 years old and drinking these beers and it was amazing and i remember first time i got drunk i was walking into the bathroom like what's this supposed to feel like and i like could barely stand i was like oh wow that's so great um and so i started experimenting with with alcohol and just to paint the picture i mean i was i was a good good kid right and i i grew up in a christian household and grew up in the faith and went to church and tried to read the Bible and tried to connect with God. Didn't really know what that meant or how to do that. I had so much resistance to prayer back then. And I had so much judgment of myself. And I got to a point where I remember sitting in church and hearing all of these born-again Christians, right? with their stories, you know, in high school ministry, these, some of these peers of mine or these older people coming to speak to us. And they had these testimonials that were so incredible. They went and did a bunch of drugs, did a bunch of bad things and lost themselves in the world, the material world and the world of sin and hedonism and they hit rock bottom and eventually they found God and they found Jesus and asked Jesus into their hearts and then they were saved and it changed their lives. And I remember as a kid, I was always super envious of those people because I didn't know what the world was like. I didn't know what hitting rock bottom was like. Now, granted, I'm, I'm like 15, 16 years old at this time. So I haven't lived a lot of life. But if you can drop into the perspective of 15-year-old you or 15-year-old me, I felt like I was just never, I, I never had an opportunity to go experience what the world's like and find God for myself. Like, what is God? What is the story of Jesus? What are all these stories and these, these, these parables and this energy that I'm being taught growing up? What, is it, what does it even mean? I don't really have any context. In the house that I grew up, my, my parents, of course, very protective, wanting to shelter me from the evil that's out in the world. They 
protected me and, and, you know, implanted these stories. So I was just super curious as a kid, like, what is the world like? And I was scared that I would never get to experience it because if I went out there and became a sinner and did all these things just to experience it, just so that I could find God for myself, that means I would have to turn my back on, on God and church now. And so as I started drinking, started exploring, when I went to college for the first time, I stopped going to church, definitely started partying more, started drinking more, started smoking cannabis, started, you know, slowly kind of getting into the things, Um, got a fake ID, went to school in Vegas, so started hitting the tables, you know, get my stipend check. A scholarship, so I'd get about, I don't know how much it was, it was probably like $1,200 a month. Half of it went to my rent, and then half of the other half went to feeding myself. But then every now and then I'd take like 40 bucks, 100 bucks, go to the blackjack table. Some, some days, you know, I'd win a few hundred bucks and live like a king. Other, other times I'd lose and have to call my dad. This one time I, I, I lost, I never forget, I lost $300. I went down to Laughlin with some of my friends from high school and I had written my check. My rent check was like 550 bucks. Rip, wrote my rent check and I had like $300 left. I had $600 in my account. And it, so the check was in the mail. So I, could, I basically could take $50 out buffer before I overdraw or overdraft. Went to laugh one of my friends, got all drunk, <clears throat> was at one of the tables and ended up pulling $300 out, lost it and had to call my dad and say, dad, I, I'm, my, my check's going to bounce unless you put, you know, 250 bucks in my, in my account. And I remember having that conversation. It was so hard. Um, and it, you'll soon realize I didn't really learn the lesson then. That was just the, the beginning. But I just, I say it to paint the picture of the context of, $300 was the end of the world for me back then. I was crushed. I was depressed. I was like, damn, I have to call my dad and ask for a couple hundred bucks. Holy shit, he's going to hate me. What am I going to do? And ends up having that call. He puts money in my account. It's all good. So I continue on my journey. End up, um, you know, having, having a fun college career in Vegas. Um, you know, don't really experiment with too many other drugs that take pain pills every now and then. Um, but really love partying, love gambling and realizing I'm, I'm using a lot of this stuff because like most of us, I'm sure you resonate. I was super insecure. Um, didn't know how to talk to girls. Um, really didn't know how to be social period. But when I drank or did drugs, I was the life of the party. I felt really good. I was fun. I was outgoing. I was always the one that like pushed it the hardest and nobody could out party me. And just like that kind of became a part of my identity. So when I got drafted, I was 21 years old. I'll never forget. Never had more than a couple thousand dollars in my bank account at once. And I got drafted in the fourth round and never forget the day I got my signing bonus. 
check came into my account. I was checking my computer daily. Like any day now, it's going to be in there. And it was like you know, $800, $800, $800. And finally, one day I hit, hit refresh, $328,000. Let's go. First thing I did, bought a car, brand new F-150 truck. Bought my parents a big, badass, big screen TV. 60 inch back then was, was a real deal. It was 2010. And decided to, to save the rest. But one thing I wanted to do was go back to Vegas and ball out. So I remember going to Vegas, having fun, feeling like the boss, all my other friends still in college. It was just a really, really fun time. Um, and felt like a king, felt really good. And that story continued to repeat itself over my entire career. I'd go back to Vegas probably three to five times a year in the off season. I'd go ball out, play big money. And yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. But it was definitely, I, I knew it was, there was a little bit of a gambling addiction there, a little bit of a problem. But I never let it get to a point where I was, it was like I was losing all of my money or it was affecting me, super affecting me financially. But it did affect me psychologically. And so fast forward to my fourth year in the NFL. I am done with the Falcons, my contract year. I'm really looking forward to going to a new team. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but I'll share that for a different episode. If you're interested, let me know. And I pack up all my stuff and I end up going, driving back to Vegas because that's where I went to school. That's where I trained and I was going to train for free agency. So long story short, go to Vegas for a few months training, end up getting uh, an offer from the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, and it was a big offer. It was you know, a few million. I don't actually know the details of the offer because it was for, before free agency. It was a big enough deal where the Falcons didn't want to lose me. So they ended up offering me a two-year, $6 million deal. And so I was super stoked. I finally made it, earned my starting job, made, you know, starter, starting contract money. I think it's it's not that much money compared to some of the guys, what, what the guys are making now, like 10 million a year. It's crazy. Um, but end up doing the same thing, looking at my account, $1.2 million comes in. It's like, let's go. And so I decide to go out and celebrate with my friends. And this is one of the best moments of my entire life. I, my, my, a lot of my college teammates that I played with uh, are, um, they work uh, as pit crew members uh, for NASCAR. And there's like three or four of them that do this NASCAR racing. And there's happens to be that weekend I got signed a NASCAR race in Vegas. And so they all got to come out with me. I said, dude, party is on me. Everybody meet me out. I'm taking everybody to dinner. We're going to have such a great time. So it's like me and like 10 of my buddies, um, some current, some high school, some college, all just coming to Vegas for this weekend and end up going uh, to a blackjack table buy in, I think I bought in for a few thousand dollars, the high limit room and end up losing all my money, getting real drunk, like taking shots of 
Top shelf, but uh, 1942 Don Julio is my favorite drink. Top shelf, just shooting it back, uh, having a blast. But I'm not, I'm like not winning. But, you know, I just made all this money. So I'm like, oh, it's a few thousand dollars. But I'm like, the thing with gambling, what I've realized is it's not, not really about the money or the amount. It's about, I want to feel like a winner. And my inner competitor and athlete, if I lose, I just I feel like shit. And I want to get even or get back all very addictive uh, personality traits that can play into this, as you'll see. And so I end up getting down to my last $300. I'm like, shit. I'm like, shit-faced at this point. Like, fuck. Play my last $300. Boom. I'm like, I'm just going to go for it. I win. I double it. I win. I double it. I win. I split it into two hands. I win. And next thing I know, I have like three, four thousand dollars in front of me. It's like, whoa. But I'm like, I'm so, I'm so shit-faced. I'm like, let's go. And I just start pressing, pressing, pressing. And over the next 40 minutes, I think I maybe lost like three or four hands. End up winning, uh, I think I was up to like 175 grand. I was up to 175 grand, and I played one $25,000 chip just to really go for it. And I lost. So then I was like, okay, I cashed out. 150 grand, boom. And I'd never won that much money before. And it, let me tell you something, I was riding high. It felt so good to have won all that money. Then go out to dinner with my friends, having a blast. Following night, go call my host because I'm big balling now. Call my host and uh, say, you know, can you set me up a, a table at, uh, at the craps table? in the casino and, you know, private craps table, you'd think. Yeah. So I set up a craps table and, um, end up sitting there. This guy ends up rolling for like 45 minutes. And as he's rolling, because I've won all this money the night before, I'm, I'm betting pretty big. So he rolls for 45 minutes and I have max bets all across the table and we're just crushing it. It's so amazing. We're just winning so much money. Ends up crapping out after like 45 minutes and we just won. I won another $83,000. So I had like 220 grand, all this cash, all my buddies with me. So you guys want to go party? End up going up to the club upstairs and you know how the rest of the night goes. We just, we ball out, popping bottles. So fun. And it's one of the best experiences of my life. And I've been chasing that peak experience ever since. And if I'm being completely honest with you, nothing's ever really come close as far as those experiences I've been chasing in Vegas, trying to win that money, trying to feel like a big baller, trying to get that high. And what I've realized and noticed is that's kind of how I've been with all of my peak experiences. And I've had a lot of them. I've had a lot of really incredible peak experiences. And what I've found is that I've been chasing them and chasing them. And I still have some really amazing ones. Like went to a festival uh, not too long ago. Went and saw Odessa. That's, that show was just like such a peak experience. But I find myself chasing those experiences throughout like normal everyday life. And I do this through my, my habits uh, my consumption of different 
state-altering substances. And um, when I go back to Vegas, I'm chasing these peak experiences with my gambling. So the reason I bring all this up is because I've been really confronting this, this inner addict part of myself. And I'll tell you where it started. I, I was recommended a book called Dopamine Nation. Very fascinating, very good book. And it talks about the perspective of, of different addicts and different addictions. But it puts all of these addictions under the same umbrella of dopamine. And that was really profound for me because I always justified all of my little habits as not an issue, not a problem because I wasn't addicted to any one thing. But when I put all of those things under one thing, under dopamine, then it became very clear that I was addicted to dopamine in a very degenerate sort of way. And, uh, you know, I think, I think most of us are, uh, whether it's social media, uh, cannabis, nicotine, coffee, uh, pornography, uh, sex, all of these things, all of these things, food, food's a big one for me. I use food. I'm going to get deeper into uh, my sense of why I am using all these things when I'm, when I'm, because there's two sides of it. I love altered states of consciousness. I love having fun. I love feeling in my body and using different things to do that. But the other side of that is, is what am I hiding from? What am I running from? What am I escaping from? Why do I feel the need to go to these things to nurture myself? So I read this book probably like six months ago and it really put things in perspective. So I did, uh, you know, like a, like a five-day dopamine detox, cold turkey, everything. It was quite challenging actually because what I realized is I don't know the last time I've been completely sober uh, since those moments in high school when I first started drinking. Now, sober is a, a loaded word. I, I feel like it's, it's, it's pretty strong. Um, when I say I don't know the last time I've been sober for a few days at a time, I'm talking like nicotine. I used to chew tobacco like a can a day during football. Um, I used to you know, like drinking coffee then you know, drinking alcohol. I don't drink alcohol as much. It's not a huge issue for me. Um, but now it's, you know, microdosing. Um, socially, I use like ketamine every now and then. Um, nicotine, coffee, you know, these kratom drinks, um, all of these things that, that release dopamine in, in different ways. And so I took a little dopamine detox, actually created a little piece of content. And it's really fascinating. This is what I find. I, I made a little Instagram reel and that reel got a lot of attention. And even now I'm, I'm like being on people's podcasts and talking to people about this journey I'm on. And it really is resonating with a lot of people, a lot of wide variety of different people in my life, in different areas of my life. And so what I found is that this is, this is an issue that I think is resonating with a lot of people. And I'll get deeper into why I'm feeling called to really confront and let go of some of this stuff. And part of it is not choosing to necessarily not looking at it from the angle of I need to let go of all these things, but I'm deciding to choose and opting in to clarity, to deeper connection and to, to having a clear channel to um, 
feel connected to my higher self. And I'll dive more into that uh, in a moment. Uh, so I did that five-day detox and it was really powerful. It felt good. And then and at that point, I was really just like focused on cycles, right? Like cycling through and um, and resetting my baseline of dopamine. Uh, and I should say, mention, there's a lot of uh, healthy ways to uh, release dopamine as well. Working out, movement, yoga, running, meditation, cold plunges, um, you know, rewarding yourself for good work, uh, for writing, all of these things. But the, the, the two ways, and I'm sure there's a, you know, you could probably break this down into a lot different areas if you're smarter than me. But the two things I like to, 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 to separate these into is, you know, the easy dopamine and then the dopamine that you, that you earn. And so earning dopamine is through stuff like working out and going on walks, accomplishing a goal, getting in the cold plunges is like super good, sauna, like these really healthy ways to release dopamine. And what I found is, you know, leaning towards a lot of these habits that I just take the easy, easy dopamine. And I do a lot of things, you know, health-wise to, to release the good dopamine as well. And so I come back and it's just interesting how much people resonated with that piece of content. Seems like a lot of people, uh, you know, are working through similar issues. So then I go to Vegas, <clears throat> go to Vegas uh, a couple months ago for a music festival called Arcadia. And it was epic, a lot of fun. Uh, and I took my partner, Sarah, and we stayed in, you know, I, I, I gamble quite a bit when I go there. I, like I said, I go to Vegas three, three to five times a year. Haven't been that much lately. Um, but I went with Sarah and, you know, because I go and I gamble, I get comped really badass penthouse rooms. And um, so we got this penthouse suite at the Aria. Uh, get everything taken care of, wine and dine. It's really quite an amazing experience. I love it so much. And there's definitely a reason why they <laughs> take care of me with all that stuff. Um, Sarah is familiar with this this gambling addict part of myself because we got married and we eloped in Vegas a couple years ago. And while I was there, I lost a little bit of money and came up to the room and told her and I was like upset and she saw a part of me and I let her see me in this, in this, in this upset and this um, feeling of failure, feeling like a loser and feeling just distraught. And she supported me and loved me and <clears throat> said, you know, it's probably something you just, you should, let go of and not do. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Definitely. <clears throat> Don't need to gamble anymore. And I feel like I say that every time I go to Vegas. Um, so then when we heading out to go to this festival, I'm like, Hey, I'm so looking forward to, to gambling a little bit. And like, you know, I'm really like, I love it so much. Like it's just, it's such a dopamine rush. So I'm telling her this and she's like, uh, are you sure you should be doing that? And I'll never forget. Like I had this, this visceral reaction of like defensiveness and like thinking back on it, it's, it's really clear why, because this part of myself didn't want to let go. It was, it took over control. And so I was able to manipulate my way into setting a boundary. And I said, you know what? Uh, what if I just put a certain limit on the amount of money that I, I gamble and I, I take with me? And She's like, okay, yeah, 
that sounds good. She felt like I had a little bit of reservations, but she's like, that makes sense. Like you work hard for your money. Like, you know, go ahead and do what you want with it. Um, but as long as you're in, in control. I'm like, okay. So we go to Vegas and end up gambling, losing, gambling. And when I'm in Vegas, I have a marker. So I'm able to uh, take money out on credit and on debt from the casino directly. Uh, and so end up losing the money that I brought and I dive into this credit, this debt, I get to a point where I actually want, I have this idea of like, I want, you know, my good luck charm, my partner, Sarah, to look all sexy and come down and gamble with me and we're going to have fun together. And again, just chasing that peak experience, chasing that high. So she comes down with me. First, we sit at the roulette table and I'm throwing, I think I have like five grand, boom throwing five grand around the table. And I end up winning a little bit, losing a little bit, winning a little bit. And it's just like, oh yeah, like I'm loving it. And she's just kind of sitting there and I gave her like a few hundred bucks and she's just playing like, you know, 10 bucks at a time, 20 bucks at a time. I'm playing like 1,500, two grand a roll or every time they put the the ball in the the spinner thing. End up losing over, you know, over 20 minutes, end up finally losing the five grand. Like, oh shit, you know, I have another 10 grand in my pocket. And at this point, I'm telling Sarah that I'm I'm up. Uh, and so then we go to my favorite game, which I go play Baccarat. So I sit down at Baccarat with another uh, five grand and start playing like $1,000 a hand. And I could tell like Sarah's getting really uncomfortable. She doesn't know what to say. And so she's like, hey, hey, babe, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling tired. You have fun down here. Be safe. Be careful. I'm going to go up to bed. I'll see you later. I'm like, all right. And this is the last day in Vegas. So I'm like, all right, I need to go win all this money back. And so I spend like the next six hours down there um, drinking, you know, and I end up losing all the money. And it's different this time. I don't feel super judgmental of myself. It's almost like, it's almost like I knew that this was happening for a reason. That this was like, it was almost like my, I needed to be confronted with this part of myself. And I just sat with it and I was like, man, fuck. Like, when are you going to stop, Joe? How many times are you going to go through this? You're chasing an experience for what? Why? So the next day, you know, I come clean. I tell Sarah, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't want to ruin our trip, but I definitely was out there gambling. And um, like she knew I was gambling, but she didn't know, you know, how much I was playing and how much I was losing. And her reflection was really quite profound. She told me how uncomfortable she felt and how she was looking at me and she just was disgusted and like couldn't couldn't really understand why I was throwing so much money out on the table and gambling, um, especially when that money could be used for so many other things. And I'm so grateful for her and that she was sitting down next to me because it allowed me an opportunity to see myself through her eyes. It was as if I saw that part of myself for the first time so clearly. 
And I looked and felt like disgusted with myself. I really saw the degenerate part of myself that was not in control. I drop into my own internal experience. Like I felt in control. I felt like I was loving it. felt like it was good. Then I switch over to her, her lens and her view of me. And I'm looking at myself like, damn, this guy is just like, somebody should call the gambling hotline for this guy. And it was really important for me to see that perspective through her eyes, especially through a woman that I love so deeply and, and respect and, and appreciate and don't want to, yeah, don't want to, don't want to hurt and don't want to, yeah, don't want to be viewed like that. I don't want to, it, it's one of those things where you don't really know how you're viewed by the world until you see yourself in a situation like that through somebody else's eyes. And so that was really powerful. And through that experience, I was able to really look at that part of myself, the inner addict, not just the inner gambler, but the inner addict. And I started recognizing this is something I've been dancing with for a while. I'm just always chasing these peak experiences. I love smoking cannabis. I love taking microdoses. I love nicotine, like those nicotine gums, those nicotine pouches. I used to chew tobacco. I don't do that anymore, but like the nicotine gum and stuff, but damn, that shit is addictive. Love coffee. Love scrolling on Instagram mindlessly because it's just releasing dopamine. So I feel like Instagram is just an echo chamber for dopamine junkies. <laughs> it's crazy. Seriously. They got it all figured out. Mm. You know, pornography, masturbation, all of these things I use to get a little hit, to get a little release. And if it's not one thing, it's the other. If I start smoking too much cannabis, like, you know, I just need to take a break from cannabis. I'll start microdosing every day or I'll drink multiple cups of coffee a day. And so what I found is like, damn, I need to really confront this part of myself. And what I started getting the sense was that I started getting curious, like what is underneath all this? Is there something I'm masking? Is there something I'm hiding from? Is there something I'm running away from? Is there something I'm not really wanting to look at or feel? And I want to I want to say, this is probably a great time to say this, I don't have any judgment towards any of these things. Any tool, because anything can be a tool, a medicine or a poison, depending on the doses, how you use it, and the intention. So I, I don't have any problem with anything. Like even, even there's, there's a professor, I don't know this whole story, but I've heard somewhere there's a professor at one of these Ivy League schools that actually does heroin and he like snorts heroin regularly, not regularly, but like on occasion as a tool uh, to access a non-ordinary state of consciousness and he uses it for different things. But he's a fully functional professor, really smart and intellectual. And he's not, you know, he's not a heroin addict on the street that lost control of his life. And that balance it's very interesting. And it's something that I, I thought I kind of figured out after that 30 days taking off um, or, or taking off uh, from this cold turkey. Um, so when I got back from Vegas, I decided to go cold turkey. And 
stopped everything. Stopped drinking coffee. I mean, I usually drink a couple cups of coffee a day. You know, I stopped doing microdoses, stopped smoking weed, st- stopped the nicotine gum, which is probably one of the hardest things ever. If like nicotine is a motherfucker and uh, really challenging. So I went 30 days, cold turkey, really clean. Uh, and during that time, I was just a really allowing space for myself to access. Like, what is what is it that I'm hiding from? Is there anything that's that's coming up? And what I realized, you know, I've done a lot of deep, deep inner work. And a lot of these tools, a lot of these different things like ketamine, cannabis, uh, other psychedelic um, plant medicines that I've used in healing contexts have all really helped me access these deeper uh, psychological stories, narratives, imprints, traumas, and work through them and heal them. Um, but this one I feel is like really deep, deep, deep. And I was obviously using a lot of these things unconsciously. And so I knew it was time to really go into what is this thing I'm using these drugs to kind of nurture myself. And as I've reflected, also what's kind of thrown into the mix of all these drugs that I use is my food habit, my eating habit. And I think it's tied to my, you know, playing in the NFL, I was 300 pounds most of my life playing football and it required a ton of eating, which created a habit of always needing to be full, always stuffing my face, always eating as much as I can, eating unhealthy. Now that I'm done playing, uh, it's been really challenging to get my eating habits under control and my, my relationship with food. And I always thought it was because of that, but then I'm, I'm really recognizing that there's some deeper psychological connection to my relationship with food and my use of drugs and really feeling, filling that void in space, um, looking for that nurturing. And so and I had a sense there's something there. Uh, ended up going to a week-long breathwork retreat and was able to access this, this part of myself when I was younger. Um, it was a really quite intense experience and it was a moment when I was in third grade. I was seven or eight years old and uh, my family ended up moving from Vegas to Orange County, California in the middle of the school year. And it was really challenging for me, obviously, as a kid. And I always know that was like a big, big moment, big imprint. But although I like remember that, there's not a lot of like vivid memories but there was a lot of unfelt emotions. There's other stuff that happened in that experience. My, my older sister had a big conflict with my mom, ended up moving out of the house to go stay with her dad, um, which had a huge impact on our entire fi- family dynamic. And what I realized in that moment is that, you know, I, I have a sense and I, I know there's still some deeper healing with this to, 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 to come through. Um, but there was, there's pictures of me when I was in Vegas, like really healthy, slim, good looking kid, really healthy. And then there's pictures of me, you know, the year or two after we moved and I'm overweight. I don't look as healthy. I look like emotionally, like a little bit like sad and never really understood that because I didn't have the tools or the understanding or the awareness back then. And neither did really anybody in my life. And 
I'm not blaming any of them, by the way. This is all everybody's doing the best that they can. I'm just reflecting on this part of myself that has been imprinted from this experience as a seven-year-old, not having the tools, not like feeling confused, not really knowing where to turn, who to talk to, how to process. And so what I did is I turned to food to comfort myself, to emotionally nurture myself when I wasn't getting that from you know, my, my family. Like it felt super disconnected from all of these things that were going on. And so I turned to food. And then when I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, that was another thing that was really filled that void. And there's been, you know, when I was on that week-long breathwork uh, experience and retreat, I was able to really access some of that energy that I was feeling back then as a kid and how isolated and alone I felt and access some of the unfelt energy and grief and was able to really feel it and process it and somatically release it. And it was really, really quite freeing and it felt really good. Um, and then coming back from that uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know, I, I was going to go out with my friends one night and then I had this thing come up of, well, if I go out, there's probably going to be drugs, you know, maybe smoke some weed or do some ketamine. And um, I was like, man, I don't want to be like the not cool guy or the sober guy. Uh, and it's fascinating how these stories creep in. And so instead of holding strong and kind of moving through that, this, this, unconscious kind of peer pressure of myself came online and I for when I was like ah, you know I'm really proud of myself I'm gonna go ahead and smoke a smoke a joint and enjoy it and so I rolled a joint really did it intentionally smoked it went on a walk had a really profound experience you know, I usually smoke weed I'm, I'm like a fully functioning pothead I would call myself like I I love smoking cannabis I smoke cannabis pretty regularly and it really opens me up, allows me to connect with the creative side of myself. But it's such a dance, right? The relationship I have with it has been, you know, very, um, you, you know, I, I smoked a lot when I was playing football. It helped me with my pain. It helped me with, you know, numbing out from all the stress and pressure. But then I've used it for these, you know, transcendent opening, enlightening experiences where I've accessed like deep wisdom. And it's just been a dance. And so because I hadn't smoked it so long, I smoked and I was like, oh, this feels so good. And then I went out and ended up partying a little bit. And I didn't want to like, and I told my friends like, yeah, I, went, I just did 30 days clean. And they were all like really amazed and impressed and wanted to hear more about it. And I was like, yeah, that was pretty, pretty amazing. I kind of was patting myself on the back. I was like, you, you did such a good job, Joe. Really quite proud of you. And so I started, you know, doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Started taking some microdoses, did a little more ketamine. Uh, then the next day, you know, smoked some cannabis, uh, started drinking coffee again. And so all these habits just all started clicking back in. And over the last two weeks, I I was just, you know, and I, there's a lot, so many layers to this. I think the part of me that wants to be the cool guy from college when I was you know, the party animal and the fun, you know, 
guy to go out with and the life of the party. I didn't want to lose that identity. It was still still a piece of me when I hang out with my friends. Like, how can I go have fun if I'm completely sober? That's no fun. I'm not the I'm not the fun sober guy. I'm the fun party guy that does all the drugs. And so I fell into that. Then there's the part of me that is nurturing myself and escaping. Then there's the part of me that is chasing the peak experience and wanting to always have fun. And then there's the side of me that uses altered states of consciousness. You know, one time I, I got an astrology reading with one of my friends. He's, he like does astrology as a hobby. So it wasn't like a super serious reading or anything, but I'll never forget him saying like, oh, that makes sense. I'm like what makes sense? He's like, oh, you're, you have a, a Pisces moon. And I have no idea about astrology, by the way. So just, just take this for what it is. Uh, you have a Pisces moon. I'm like, oh, what's that mean? It's like, basically it means you like to get fucked up. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, well, you like altered states of consciousness and and you you kind of, you can dance with addiction. Um, but yeah, it's like, basically you like, you like to have fun. And I remember I heard that a couple of years ago and I remember that like, that, that allowed me to let go of so much judgment of myself for, for enjoying all of these things. Cause my, my journey with cannabis specifically is there's been a lot of judgment and shame around that. Um, especially when I, you know, started smoking, like it was really frowned upon and illegal. And now most places it's legal. So it's like a completely different mindset towards it. And that's me personally and collectively, but same with like all these things. And, you know, the judgment does come from my upbringing and like drugs are bad. Um, but I've really worked a lot through, work through a lot of that judgment of drugs is bad, but now I'm dancing with my relationship to these, 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 uh, these things and how I use them and what am I using them for? And what I've realized is I'm chasing this dopamine degenerate part of myself and this, this part of myself that wants to always have the peak experience, the part of myself that always wants to have fun part of myself that wants to go to Vegas and win 200 grand at the tables and what that means and what that makes me feel like and who I am. I've been chasing these experiences ever since. And looking back on it, I feel like now, I've been dancing with this for a while, but now is this, this time where I really feel called to, to lean in and to let go. It's hard for me to say I'm going to, I'm choosing sobriety. I just, I don't think that's this journey I'm on where it's, I have a problem and I need to be sober for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm looking at it instead of I have a problem and I, I can't do these things because I lose control because I'm a fully functional uh, dopamine addict, which I think there's a lot of people out there that can really resonate with this. Like I'm, I'm not distracted. I'm super successful. I have really functioning business, social life, like all this stuff. I just enjoy this stuff. Like I, I honestly, like I'm not trying to make it sound like I have a, a toxic, destructive pattern and problem. I've been like this for years and it's it's just who I am. And I, I got a pretty good balance with it in a, in a lot of ways. You could, you could argue with that, right? And that's why I'm having this conversation. But my point is I'm not, I'm not like losing friends, relationships, jobs, money, enough money to like really financially make me unstable. So I'm really choosing, instead of choosing 
to let go and like say no to these things, I'm choosing clarity. I'm choosing connection. I'm choosing this journey. I feel I've been feeling called to for the last couple of years of really showing up to be in service to something greater than myself. And in order to do that, in order to be an open channel, in order to be a space holder, a facilitator uh, of, of, of healing, of growth, of connection, uh, uh, to build community, to, to have a message of, of really showing up and supporting people through this great shift, this great transition that we're going through on humanity, in humanity, on this planet, I'm feeling called that it's time for me to, to really focus on what it means to be in alignment and what it means to really keep my frequency and my vibration as high as possible. And there might come a time when I have my, a better relationship with all these things and I'm able to implement them um, in the right ways with balance and intention. And I plan on that being the case. But what I'm feeling right now, just from my 30 days clean and then you know, allowing myself to smoke a little bit and then drink some coffee, that I'm not there. That there's just still some, some, there's something in me that is, that is needing to fill that void with these things. And until I can really confront that and feel that and move through that, I'm feeling really called to, to be clean and to be focused and um, to really come back to my baseline dopamine and see what that experience of life is like. Uh, and I'm really interested to, 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 to feel uh, what that experience is like. And uh, I started, today's my second day uh, after the two weeks where I kind of lost control a little bit. Today's my second day. And uh, I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this, uh, but I'm going to be for the foreseeable future, really uh, striving to stay, stay clean and stay connected and allow myself to be open and, and really connected with my heart uh, and see where I'm guided uh, with this newfound uh, clarity and, and where I can take it. Um, there's one thing I wanted to share as well, which I think is really cool, really fascinating story. Um, one of my good friends is a shamanic practitioner uh, and he's super tapped in. Um, he's actually, his name's Rami and he was just on this podcast, uh, I think the episode before this. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to his story because it is fucking nuts. So I went and actually had a session with him yesterday and he does some really, really incredible work. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's shamanism. It's, it's not the traditional Western kind of healing modality. Um, it's very energetic. Um, and it's very kind of, uh, visual and participatory and a lot of visionary space. A lot of, he works in different different uh, visionary realms and kind of accesses the collective unconscious. Um, and so we went in this journey, felt called to do a session with him. And he took me through uh, this, this, this shamanic journey where we went into my underworld and accessed uh, different chambers um, pertaining to this wounding that I'm speaking to now because I, I shared it with him. And I'm like, I'm just really confronting this, this inner addict part of myself. And I told him about my my sensibility that it, it may be from this experience when I was younger and seven or eight years old. And and so he takes me through this whole journey. And the cool thing is he like leaves it open. He's like, open this door. Like what 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 is the the chamber of wounds? What is the experience? 
And so he's actually having his own experience while I'm having my own experience. And I'm obviously not super connected. So I'm like, I'm, I'm playing the story of connecting with that seven-year-old part of myself and, you know, all this stuff. And so when we sit down to process after uh, the experience is over and, and he kind of moves all the energy and um, feeling light and, and clean and clear, uh, we sit down and, and, and do a little processing time. I'm like, so tell me what, what came up for you? And, uh, you know, he was like, oh man, he's like, I, I tapped into this past life of yours where you were, you were a king. He's like, I think it was, he's like, it was, it was, didn't feel like maybe it wasn't on this planet, but you were a king and there was gold everywhere. And you were kind of the drunken king. Like you were born into royalty. You were the golden child. You were given everything, um, your entire life, everything was provided for you. In, instead of like give, receiving your mother's nurturing, they, they just filled your life with things. And you became this archetypal drunken king that wasn't evil or bad per se, but was selfish and self-absorbed and hedonistic and got whatever he wanted and just filled that void, that insatiable desire for more and experiences and peak experiences until he died fat, obese, uh, unhappy, and alone and feeling unloved. And I was blown away. I, I really, I want to bring into the conversation because whether you you believe in past lives or anything that I just told about that story, I don't really connect with it as far as, man, is that true? Did I Did I actually live a past life as a king? Because I don't think that's really, that really doesn't matter to me. But what matters is, does this story resonate and help me with my experience now? And so whether I, I lived a past life as a king and had this whole experience in life, and I, I don't remember that, and I don't remember having that experience. So there could be a part of my energy signature that you could say, yeah, maybe you could. But my experience is I did not have that experience. But as I tap into that energy and the similarities of my story and the energy and frequency that feels connected to this like hedonistic part of myself, overindulgence, using these things to really like chase peak experiences um, and filling that void with, with all this external stuff. And then kind of what it led to is being unhappy. And because I've always had this story, and I'm sure a lot of people probably can resonate with this is like, man, I wish I was born into royalty, into wealth, and had everything taken care of for me and didn't have to worry about anything and just got everything I've ever wanted and my desires met and just boom, it was just that easy. And so for me to tap into Rami saying, you actually had a lifetime like that and it was very vivid and clear. And I was able to, it was a really fascinating experience. Like, whoa, and I wasn't happy. And I could feel the energy of myself if I was in that experience, like, how I would act, what I would, what I would try and fill that void with. It's the greater and greater experiences, and to feel, still feel unhappy, to still seek for seeking for love, for connection, for intimacy, and just never being able to fill that void with access to everything I'd ever need in the material world. And so taking that, whether it's true that I lived a past life like that or not, it really helps support me in, in really confronting this part of myself that is chasing these peak experiences, is 
looking for nurturing and love through food and through dopamine and through different altered states. And so I wanted to share that just to bring it in. I think it's a cool story of being the drunken king archetype and um, still really kind of wish I could experience that, I guess, somewhere and sometime I am. Um, but coming back into this moment, into this experience now, uh, I'm just really feeling called to share where I'm at. Uh, I'm not perfect and I'm going to be flowing with this energy um, and I might slip up and I'm not, you know, I, I think talking about it, the more I talk about it, the easier it is to embody. And so I wanted to share it with all of you. Hopefully it inspires you to look at your own habits and, and go deeper into some of your own inner work. Uh, and again, I do not judge or have any ill will towards any substance supplement or any kind of altered uh, state of consciousness tool. I absolutely love them all. And I've done probably most of them, if not all of them. And they've all had profound impacts on my life. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm never going to have any of them again. And I'm not saying I'm uh, a degenerate that is ruining his life and, and coming into sobriety. Um, but all of that being said, it's, it is challenging. And I, and I do have a lot of appreciation for, I've, I have some friends that are, that are sober, uh, you know, issues with alcohol. And I know Sarah, like she's sober now from alcohol and, and it is, it is, it's the same part of ourselves that is that insatiable feeling of using something to fill the void, something within us. And maybe it comes to a point where I never am able to experience all these things because I, I keep losing control and I'm using them for the wrong reasons. Maybe. But right now I'm really focused on, on feeling what it's like to have a clean vessel to have an open channel and to focus on being a father, being um, an entrepreneur and yeah, being a creator and community builder. And uh, I really appreciate everybody dropping in. I, I'm, I'm, if you stayed this long, I'm grateful for you. Uh, I hope that uh, something in this, uh, in this share resonated with you and, inspired you to go on your own journey. Uh, I would love to hear from you, how this impacted you. You can reach out to me at uh, info at theheartcollective.com email or Instagram, joe.holly, or you can join the Heart Collective Telegram channel uh, link in the bio uh, and just join the conversation around heart-led leadership. Um, yeah, I'd really, really, really appreciate it. And I would look, uh, really look forward to hearing from some of you and how this impacted you. Uh, thank you for your support, for your words of encouragement and your energy. I can feel it now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. Uh, also would love to hear if there's any guests that you guys would love for me to interview or have a conversation with. Reach out with that as well. And uh, look forward to chatting soon. All right. Peace.